So people are finding it difficult. People are, are cutting back on their energy usage. And as it gets colder, and especially across Scotland, when it starts to get colder through the winter, that can be dangerous for some folk. That was former Aberdeen Council leader Kate Dean, now at Citizens Advice Scotland, on the cost of living crisis. We'll hear more from her later in the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Derek Healy and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. That's what we normally do, but this has been no normal week in politics. When we signed off for the summer holidays, we didn't expect to be back within a few days reporting on the downfall of Boris Johnson. Derek was back for a special one-off episode on that very fact the last time the Stushy siren was activated. Then, just when we thought it was safe to turn on the mics, news of the Queen's death was confirmed. It's been one of the most unusual periods that I can remember. We've got a lot to discuss about what happens next, and we'll get to all of that. The new king, a crackdown on the right to protest, the new prime minister and her Scottish problem, and a glance at the other news stories catching our collective eye. But frankly, you will have been saturated in news of the past week's royal events and state mourning, so we're going to start with the big issue we were thinking about before the news came out of Balmoral. The country is facing an economic crisis. Bills are going up. Public services stopped during strikes over pay, and energy cap was imposed on prices already unaffordable for many. With that in mind, politics reporter Rachel Amory has been trying to find out what's in store as we head to winter with scandalously vague details of any real rescue plan from the government. We'll have a trip round the implications for the government shortly, but first Rachel asked Kate Dean from the Aberdeen Office of Citizens Advice Scotland if the Prime Minister's initial promise of a cap on energy bills is too little, too late. Well, I think we have to look at the fact that even with this intervention, that bills this October are going to be around £1,000 higher than they were a year ago. We know that there are people who are already struggling and, you know, they, they will continue to struggle and that struggle will get worse. So it's while it's always welcome, you know, there will still be people that have problems. It'll It'll solve the problem or alleviate the problem for some folk, but not for everybody. Absolutely. Uh, political leaders are going to be looking for quite a bit of praise with this announcement. It was held as our first big act as Prime Minister, but like, like you said, £2,500, it's an astronomical price for for most people. And last year, I think the cap was 1200 I mean, how much are people going to struggle this year, more than last year? Well, I think we've seen them struggling already. The, the people that are coming into our bureau, and I know that this is reflected right across the country, um, that are just not finding the money to keep up with the bills as it stands. And albeit that there is now a cap, there will still be another increase until that cap is reached. So people are, are finding it difficult. People are, are cutting back on their energy usage. And as it gets colder, and especially across Scotland, when it starts to get colder through the winter, that can be dangerous for some folk. Well, absolutely. That is one thing that we've got to consider. These areas that are up in, in the north and northeast of Scotland are going to be much colder. Now, the typical household, the government has defined that as somebody who uses 12,000 kilowatts hours of gas a year and 2,900 kilowatt hours of electricity a year. But obviously, if you use more than this, you have to pay more than this. And I'm just thinking, I mean, lots of old stone and granite houses, winter weather's going to be a bit colder and harsher up north as well. I mean, it's, it's potentially going to be a lot more than £2,500 for people in the area, isn't it? 
You're right, I think so. And I, and I think many of us are, are used to paying a bit more for electricity than, than what you would call the average. In fact, I couldn't tell you if I would ever have known before this happened what the average was. I know what, what I've been paying and I know what I'm going to be paying after this. And again, we've heard stories not only from clients. One of our advisors came in the other day and said that their direct debit has gone up by 290%. So it's a scary figure. That is one thing as well. The figures, there seems to be very little in terms of numbers and hard facts to back up what's been announced by the Prime Minister. Is that something that you're concerned about at all? Do you feel that there is actually a clear direction as to what's going to happen to the individual person? I think because it is, we are talking about individuals here, that everybody's going to find out what will happen for themselves. I think it's kind of difficult and probably dangerous to generalise on this, that each household is going to have to look at their own budget uh, and work out what they're going to do to try and make ends meet. And that, I hope, is where the where the Bureau Service can help through our, our Advice Adds Up campaign um, and just looking at, at maximising income and minimising expenditure as far as possible. I mean, what sort of things are people coming to you and telling you that they're struggling with? What sort of decisions are they having to make? We're finding a lot of people, especially those who, who are on fixed income like pensions or those on benefits, that are just not managing to to make ends meet. We've had a lot more referrals to food banks. We we have people in saying that they're you know they're not able to top up their prepayment meters uh, and looking for help with that. So it's folk are struggling already, and that's through relatively fine weather uh, and still before you know the next increase happens. So while that increase, it's welcome that the increase is is less than we thought it was going to be. It is still another increase that folk are going to have to cope with. I mean, what sort of advice is it that you give to people? I mean, I know it's obviously different for each individual household, but um, what's the kind of advice that is given out normally? We do quite a lot on what we call income maximisation in terms of looking to see if there are any benefits or whatever that, that people are entitled to, anything that they should be getting that they're not. We can also look at what they're spending out. And obviously, it used to be that um, advising them to shop around for their gas and electricity was one of the big wins that people could make and that's not the case then anymore sadly but there are other things that folk can look at like broadband contracts mobile phone contracts whoever your tv provider is whether there are things there whether there are are odd wee subscriptions and i think a lot of us are guilty of this things that go out of our bank account by direct debit even once a year your resubscription to support uh, some organization and it's been there so long you've forgotten about it. And that's the kind of thing that people are having to look at now uh, and actually go through what they're spending and why, whether there are any any cheaper ways of, of doing that, whether they can negotiate uh, better rates on, on contracts for phones and TV and, and such as that, and just see where they can make their own savings. Now, last week, we also spoke to a, a GP uh, who lives in Orkney. He's concerned about his patient's health over the winter, eh, both physically because they'll potentially have to be sitting in cold houses, might not be eating as much food, and also mentally with the stress of having to find the money to pay all these bills. I mean, what, what sort of your thoughts there? What do you make of that? I, I can certainly see uh, both of those. I think uh, the fact that we've just come through the pandemic when a lot of people felt isolated in their own homes um, has has had a big effect on on most of us and I wouldn't see anybody wanting to to go back to that kind of situation where they are just staying home. Um, I I would hope that people will try and get out and about. I know that our community space is open 
uh, that folk can go for a, a heat, a cup of tea, a blether, um, and actually get out and about. And, and with that, to try and boost their mental health, then, you know, obviously, and, and if they can get warm at the same time, then and so much the better. I mean, I I think back with a, a wry smile on my face to my uh, brief student days in Aberdeen, where I did a lot of my studying in the winter gardens in Duffy Park because it was warm and I didn't have to feed the electric meter for the time that I was there. Now, that's maybe a bit extreme, but, you know, there are places if you go out and, and you know, meet your friends, say, go to your local community centre or something like that, you can get the social interaction and, and uh, as I say, you're not heating your house in, in the time that you're out. So I think people are now going to start looking towards things like that to try and um, help them get through what could be a long and dark winter. It usually is this end of the country. It'll be interesting to see how many people uh, take go back to working in the office after all this home working because of the energy bills as well. That's an interesting one to think about. Um, I mean, Aberdeen, oil capital, of course. It, it must seem a bit jarring that there's all these massive oil companies, so much oil coming in through the city, through the harbour especially, and yet there'll be people in the city who are struggling to with their energy bills. That just It's quite a jarring um, contrast there, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, while obviously we appreciate the the fact that we've we've had all the benefits of of oil, and we appreciate the jobs that it still provides, and the you'd be amazed how far the ripple goes out. It's not just the people that work offshore, but it's the people the, the people in the shops and businesses where those folks spend their money, and so on and so on. That you know we we do well out of having a buoyant oil and gas industry. It's a bit difficult when you know when folk are struggling to pay the bills but um you know at, at least we've still got our industry there are a lot of areas across scotland that that are struggling to to have jobs so you know that's that's one bright bright moment in there that was kate dean from citizens advice scotland in aberdeen on the cost of living crisis anyone looking for more information and advice can find that online at places like moneymap.scot then there are council tax checkers for discounts you can you can find there and other signposts to helpful resources listening to that certainly puts the context firmly around what we need to get to next um, i'm joined here by courier political editor derek healy are people right to be worried about what is coming down the road here i think it sounds incredibly worrying doesn't it when you listen to that, the idea of people having to go to community spaces and get a heat. I mean, of course, that may be fine during the day, but then when it gets colder in the evenings and overnight, what are people going to do? And it's, yeah, I think it's incredibly worrying. This is, we expected this to be the first big problem um, waiting for Liz Truss in her entry when she became Prime Minister. Um, in a way, the death of the Queen has kind of pushed that back a little bit um, and, and pushed it down the road. But the reality is we are now running out of track. Something needs to be done. We know there's going to be a mini budget coming next week from Quasi Quarting. Um, but as Rachel touched on in our interview there, the, the actual details of what we can expect are still very scarce. So I think for an awful lot of people, um, not, not just people at home, I mean, I think businesses as well. I mean, I think they have a real worry of thinking just how high are these bills going to go and what kind of supporters are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people will now be looking. At planning ahead for the winter, planning around Christmas time in the new year, which is traditionally um, a really strong period for a lot of businesses, and they'll be wondering, well, you know, how high are these bills going to go over that period, and are we going to be going to be able to make ends meet? So yeah, I think it's a really, yeah. really worrying time. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's details, um, quite technical details on the UK government website about how the the price cap, which was announced before um, the Queen died, um, the, the limit being, well, the cap being £2,500. Of course, we've done lots of research, um, which you can find on our websites too, about how this might affect average bills. And if you look at the, uh, the figures for Aberdeenshire or Argyll, to take two examples, um, where bills can be pretty high, given the, the nature of the housing stock and also the, the, the climate and everything else, they were already um, above above that level. I mean, £2,800, an average bill in, in Aberdeenshire, for example. And if you applied the October uh, lift, which we were all you know, shocked by uh, just the other week, then the bills in Aberdeenshire go over 5000 So, I mean, we're going to be hearing a lot more from the Prime Minister um, once this national period of, of mourning passes, what signals about her policies and intentions should people be looking out for here, Derek? I think just just to touch on that point, first of all, about the amount that this has gone up by, I mean, it's worth pointing out that, you know, when we're talking these kind of figures, for some people that is just fundamentally unaffordable. Um, you know, for a lot of people, you know, we've heard talk about, you know, you can how can you reduce what you're what you're using? You know, can you turn off lights? Can you put a jumper on and, and little things like that? Which you know, a lot of people, most people do anyway. I think, but when you're talking that kind of figure, I mean, just how how do you make that up? And a lot of people just won't be able to. And I think that's where we're going to run into real real problems. Yeah. Um. So I think I mean some of the talk we've heard is that there's you know tax cuts is when we're we're looking at this. You know, there might be. All sorts of things being delivered um, in this sort of mini budget next week. Um, I think it's probably worth saying that you know, with everything that's been going on in the Queen and everything that's been going on around anyway, um, there's probably been limited time to organise a sort of major fiscal event. So, um, how much we're actually going to see, I don't know. Um, the government at the moment are expected to confirm plans to reverse the recent rise in national insurance. Um, that's not going to do an awful lot. I mean, I think um, the figures I saw. We're setting out, I think it's about £1,800 a year to top earners, but only about £7 a year for those earning the least. Um, I think they're talking about ditching a planned rise in corporation tax, uh, cuts to VAT, all sorts of things like that we've, we've kind of heard about. Um, the other big thing we've heard about in this mini-budget is kind of plans to scrap the cap on bankers' bonuses. I'm not sure that any of that's really going to help massively when it comes to cost of living um, for most people. So, you know, there's been mm. there's been so little detail so far um, that it's really, really hard to predict what we're going to see. I've had loads of people asking me, and quite honestly, I think at the moment we just don't know. We just don't know until we get closer to it. The impact of budgets being set down in Westminster also has a knock-on impact for, for financial forecasting in Holyrood as well. Uh, Liz Trust rather infamously quipped she would ignore Nicholas Sturgeon um, in if she got into Downing Street, branding the First Minister an attention seeker. I mean, what do you think that course of action is going to lead to here? I mean, there's going to be a desire across the whole of the UK for people to pull together a little bit on when it, on these big issues. I mean, should Liz Trust be ignoring the First Minister at this point, or does does Nicholas Sturgeon have anything different or important to say on what we can do with um, a cost of living crisis? See, I, I think to some extent what we saw from Liz Truss during the sort of leadership campaign was sort of her playing to the gallery, really. I mean, there's, there's not going to be any political capital for any incoming Conservative leader in saying, you know, I'm going to take a softer stance on independence or a softer stance on the SNP, or actually I'm going to call Nicola Sturgeon up and we're going to discuss things. 
it's never going to play well to the base. And I should say, you know, as well as that, it's probably not a terrible thing for Nicola Sturgeon because being at odds with the new Conservative Prime Minister plays plays pretty well to the SNP base as well. Um, but you, you're right. I mean, the reality is there's really, really tough stuff coming down the track here. And I think, you know, if there's any way that people can speak to each other, obviously that's to be encouraged. Um, I don't think, to be honest with you, you know, that kind of political quips made during a leadership campaign are going to provide any real barrier to be to people being able to sit down and speak. Yeah. Liz Truss obviously was Foreign Secretary previously, so has plenty of experience of sitting down and talking with people who have different views, different stances. Um, and I think that's going to be really, really important that she does that. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't think that... Yeah. What we've seen so far, you know, the sort of the trading of the barbs around calling Nicola Sturgeon an attention seeker, Nicola Sturgeon talking about, you know, the bit about Liz Trust asking her how to get into Vogue and all these sorts of things that made headlines. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think that's going to provide a really serious barrier to, to serious talk, and at least I hope it's not going to. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking there about the political constitution there, the the, the age-old divide which we seem to return to with um, daily frequency. But I got a hefty dose of focus in, in recent days with the death of the Queen and the, the proclamation of, of a new king, King Charles. The, the optics of the procession through Scotland, the first address at the Scottish Parliament by Charles, all the pomp, the symbolism. I mean, you've been covering all this as well, Justin. Uh, everyone has an opinion on, on, on whether this means game over for Nicola Sturgeon, game on for a break with the past. What, what do the actual polls and recent reporting tell us about the kind of state of the nation beyond what we're looking at this week? Well, this has been an interesting one to look at this week. Um, there's actually been a bit of a bounce for the approval ratings across the UK for King Charles. Beforehand, he didn't necessarily have the same levels of popularity that his mother did. Queen Elizabeth II obviously just kind of seen as universally popular to a major extent. Charles was always a bit more divisive. However, I suppose he, now he is king, his approval ratings have gone up perhaps due to the fact he's now head of state, he is seen as more, you know, authoritative, perhaps. In Scotland, the monarchy has traditionally not been as popular as down south. However, it's not as if people in Scotland are necessarily completely anti-monarchy. There have been a number of polls done on this. Often, the monarchy has been slightly more popular than establishing a republic. Some people necessarily don't know what they like. Some people are kind of unsure so it's not like the monarchy has perhaps the kind of majority, universal level of popularity it does down south. How it will cope going forward is hard to tell. There's always been a suggestion among some people that popularity for the monarchy was more rooted in Queen Elizabeth herself versus the monarchy as a whole. However, it's an institution that has endured for a long time. It certainly doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. And even among politicians, you don't see that much of an appetite for speaking out against it. You know, obviously the SNP want to leave the UK, they want Scotland to go independent, but the SNP's official stance is very much to keep the monarchy. Nicola Sturgeon's praise for the Queen after her passing and her comments about King Charles have been very effusive, very positive. And while there are elements within the independence movement, such as the Scottish Greens and indeed elements within the SNP as well, who aren't as keen on the monarchy, it's certainly not as if this is going to suggest a complete break with it or even a major break with the monarchy at the moment. No, no, I mean, and, and the optics, of course, were people lining the streets from Balmoral to Edinburgh, basically, desperately wanting to be close to the, the hearse that was taking the coffin down to, to Edinburgh the other day. Um, I was in Holyrood to see the procession up the Royal Mile and Charles's address to Parliament. 
from my vantage point on the street, I mean, you could hear a pin drop to start with, and it was clearly a huge, huge deal. But you could hear some protest. We saw footage last Monday of someone allegedly addressing Prince Andrew. Uh, meanwhile, others have been arrested in connection with breach of the peace allegations for protesting. Blank signs being held up, drawing attention to freedom of speech complaints. I mean, these are these are very, very, very small, like minority elements at the moment. But they were there, and they were they were cracked down on quite hard. Justin, what do you what do you think of the way that the days they've shifted slightly towards a slightly more critical appraisal of what's happening? I mean, the the, the freedom of speech stuff. How do you think that's starting to play out? I suppose in some ways it's a difficult one. Obviously, there's always going to be an element of protest whenever an event like this happens. It's within people's right to protest. It's you know the, the kind of cliche of it's a free country, freedom of speech is a right here. Obviously, at the same time though, within the limits of protest, you, you can't just do anything. If, if you kind of step over the line in a protest, you do risk arrest, you do risk punishment for that. However, what happened earlier in the week would be seen by many as quite tame, perhaps, if it wasn't the monarchy. There was no violence, really. It was all conducted quite peacefully. And if you do live in a free country, you also do have the right to speak out against the monarchy. Some people will argue that it's not the right time, especially as the royal family were walking up the mile. However, those who are protesting will say, well, when is there a better time? The attention is all on the monarchy at the moment. There's a lot of focus on the monarchy. There are legitimate issues surrounding Prince Andrew and his kind of prominence in recent days since the passing of his mother. So protesters will say, if you want your voice to be heard, I suppose in some ways it's a bit similar to some of the strikes we've seen that have been called off recently. But if you're a protester, you want to do these things at the optimum time. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you can say or do absolutely anything, but... Yeah, there have definitely been some legitimate concerns that police are perhaps, whether you, whether overstepping the mark is the right word, police seem very, very eager to clamp down on yeah. what could be seen as legitimate and rightful protest. Worth, worth pointing out as well that it was, um, this is not a, a Republican protest as well, when it, a Republican backlash. The monarchists were um, a little bit concerned about the, the level of crackdown on, on dissent, I suppose. I mean, David Davis, not known for anything other than being a a very effusive unionist conservative monarchist. I mean, he he wrote to the chief constable of police Scotland with his concerns about um, stifling any kind of freedom of speech. But but it hasn't all been about royals and the new prime minister. Here on the Stushi, we take it as our sacred duty to lift everyone's eyes north of that big central belt news vortex and remind people across Scotland, the UK and beyond, that some of the most interesting things are happening where we ply our trade. So let's have a look at the pick of the best from the week in review from the Courier and Press and Journal titles. Derek, you've been looking at, uh, glancing around the the newsstands of the Press and Journal and the Courier patches in this past week. I just wondered if anything's been catching your eye that's kind of breaks out of the news cycle that so many of us have been paid, glued to with the royals and the prime minister and everything else. What else is going on out there? One of the stories uh, that really caught my eye was one written by Rachel um, on the tourism tax. So this is something that's been a kind of ongoing discussion and row over the last few years. Um, the the Scottish government have kind of passed or are going to pass down the powers to the local councils to be able to introduce tourism uh, taxes. It's something we saw discussed really in terms of Edinburgh initially. Uh, I think the suggestion was at one stage that we could we could look at charging people I think two pounds a night when they come in as tourists um, just to fund some of the kind of different kind of local projects and things like that that go on. 
and really just take advantage of the, the number of people that are coming in, particularly during things like the fringe and and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's not something that, you know. Different councils have different kind of opinions on this, and I think that if you're not a big city like Edinburgh, then there's probably less use for it. But what I found was really really interesting was the response that Rachel got from some of the councils that she spoke to. Uh, and particularly because it's been a, an issue that's been discussed over over a period of time. Um, what Five Council basically said in response to this was that this is an Edinburgh problem, it's not our problem, and introducing these sort of measures and giving councils the opportunity to do this is not a replacement for properly funding local authorities. And what we actually need yeah. is more cash. Um, so I thought, you know, quite an interesting response to the question. Um, yeah. And something I think probably that a, a lot of councils will be feeling the same way on because it's, you know, we've seen some of the you know, some of the cash problems councils are having right now. Um, and I wonder how effective a, a, something like a tourism mm -hmm. tax is in, city, in your councils that don't have these big cities in them. Yeah. Looking up the coast as well, uh, Rachel got some interesting responses and Adele Merson in, in Aberdeen, she was looking at the, the, the north end of the the telescope and uh, Aberdeenshire Council they, they, their leader well, these aren't official positions it was like interviews with leaders and which makes it quite uh, unique because they're not having to go through committees and things like yeah. that but their personal views were that um, yeah the leader in Aberdeenshire was saying this is absolutely the last thing we need right now when I mean, they're trying to rebuild from the pandemic and there's an economic crisis going on and Aberdeenshire is saying well do we need to further discourage people from coming here I don't know but yeah it was um there's a lot more to that policy, which has been rumbling on for so long, but it, yeah, it, it, it goes way beyond it being an Edinburgh problem because it, it's something that will have to be uh, weighed up against actual funding. And of course, we saw what happened when people started getting really angry about the lack of funding and pay over summer. Um, I know I said we would look away from the central belt, but anyone who went to Edinburgh over the festival will have seen what happens when there's a proper pay dispute, um, which all stems from the budgets and fundings that councils are getting. Yeah, do you know, Andy, I was going to say it's disappointing that there was no response um, to those questions from Dundee City Council. I think particularly because that is an area where there is this big, well, they're hoping there's going to be this big boom in tourism with the V&A, with the Eden Project, with the new um, gaming arena and things like that, your know, e-gaming arena. All these things going on where they're trying to bring tourists in and trying to see that as a new... Um, sort of revenue stream for them really in a major way I, mean, I think it would be really really interesting to see what they've got to say so hope, hopefully um, we make an answer to that going down the line but yeah for these sort of emerging um, tourism centres in Scotland I think that would be a fascinating thing to see what they, where they actually stand on yeah. that Back to funding and money where this country and bits of it got the money from in the first place Justin you've been picking on a, a story that our colleague Callum Ross has been looking into for for weeks now, and with some pretty remarkable insight into it. Tell tell us about the um, the story that you've you've picked out today. So this is a really really interesting one. Um, up an Aberdeenshire councillor uh, quit his role in a teaching trust over the trust's links to um, slavery in the past. Uh, so this has been a bit of a controversial one. The council had previously committed to kind of perhaps not working with this trust going forward. However, that, they've kind of backtracked on that, but a Lib Dem councillor now has essentially said, enough is enough, I'm not involving myself with this. Um, this is the Dick Bequest Teaching Fund, and it's existed for a long, long time. However, it's only in more recent times that uh, James Dick, who kind of inspired that trust after his death in the 1800s, 
his links to slavery have come to light. And I suppose this is the case. It kind of harks back to 2020 when the Black Lives Matter protests were in full swing in America and kind of came over here as well, when it made people think about you know, street names and statues and so many of the things that I suppose surround us day to day that we don't even think about. Our country's wealth has often been built on these people. It's been built on the institutions that they had, but obviously their money in a lot of cases has come from involvement in slavery and practices that we would see not only as unacceptable now, but were unacceptable to many back then as well. So I think in issues like this, it shows when it goes down to a level where you've even got teaching trusts that are kind of under scrutiny and under fire for their involvement here. It shows how rooted, I suppose, elements of the country have been in, you know, making their wealth from people who were involved in slavery. Yeah, and, and it, this was a, an interesting kind of line because it, it came from local historians who'd been sort of digging into the past and figuring out where this money had come from in the, fir- in the first place. And it's been helping support teachers across the Northeast for, for, for some time. And I think, well, in the next few days from this recording, Aberdeen should be talking about whether they appoint new trustees or or how they're going to approach this um, this latest focus on where the money comes from. So we really kind of watch this space. Um, there's a lot more to come on this one about the future of this fund. I was having a look at around as well. It's been a, it's been necessarily a pretty heavy, pretty heavy few weeks, um, and it does seem sometimes that there's not a lot of light among the among the the shade of uh, of the news at the moment. But I did see one that uh, made me laugh at least. And it, believe it or not, is linked to the cost of living. It was in the, the Press and Journal and it was a, pa- a, a pub landlord in Port Lethen near Aberdeen who has uh, found a unique way to, to deal with the cost of living, which I think we can all get on board with. Basically, all he's done is worked out that if he just stops serving side salads, he can, uh, he can cut his menu costs by about 10%. What do we reckon? Do you think that this guy here should be um, parachuted into government straight away, or what do you think? I'm not sure how much the uh, health officials might be too keen on that. <laughs> it's certainly oh, no. it's certainly an innovative thinking, isn't it? I know he's thinking out the box. I'm not sure we're going to get that in Friday's budget. Every restaurant must stop no. <laughs> serving side salads. No. <laughs> well, I'm trying to work out in my mind how many side salads I've I've carefully piled up underneath my knife and fork. <laughs> in the years I've been on this earth. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I reckon that's that's probably that's probably a sign we need to call it a day. I'm going to wrap up here with thanks to Rachel Emery, Derek Healy, Justin Bowie, our guest Kate Dean, producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.